Hey, everybody. I'm John Small. And I'm Dan Bova. And from the Entrepreneur Media Podcast Network, this is Dirty Money. Investigators have called it one of the biggest corruption cases ever. You're one of the greatest con men of all time. You're the daddy of them all. But what does it take to be a good con man? I'm not guilty. You're the one who's guilty. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Dirty Money. Dan, you've heard of Ponzi schemes, right? Yes. I feel like every other huge financial crime uh, that gets reported on, at some point, the phrase, it was a Ponzi scheme, comes up. Yes. So I, I think we've all heard the phrase Ponzi scheme, but how much do you know about the guy they were named after? You know, I'm going to be honest, for a very long time, I, I didn't even know it was named after a guy. I, I didn't either. I just thought it was some kind of financial term or something. I didn't know what it was. Well, I had to dig into it. I was curious because, you know, because this show is called Dirty Money and Ponzi schemes are, you know, one of our favorite scams to talk about, I decided to do a little digging and look into the life of the OG of Ponzi schemes, the original gangster, Charles Ponzi. And it turns out that like in the 1920s, everyone knew who Charles Ponzi was. He was very, very famous. And he was like a tabloid hero. Wow. He sort of like captured the story of that era of the sort of American dream, like the Italian immigrant, like the rags to riches type of story. Now it's sad because the story, like we said, is mostly forgotten. Like nobody really knows who Charles Ponzi is. But his name lives on in infamy. Yeah. <laughs> and probably not the way that he had hoped it would. No, I, I, I don't think so. And as an Italian-American, I'm proud uh, to hear that he is. Uh, <laughs> He's one of the good ones. <laughs> He's one of the good ones. <laughs> well, it's funny because we think of him as being like this evil guy. But as you will see, he was really a hero to a lot of people, even after he went to jail, especially the people in the Italian community considered him to be like a larger than life hero. Wow. I am very eager to learn more. And knowing we were going to do this, I purposely didn't even look at a Wikipedia page <laughs> on this guy. because I didn't know nothing about him. So I'm very anxious to learn all about my main man, Charles Ponzi. All right. Well, as curious as I am to jump into his life story, maybe, you know, we all have heard the, the words Ponzi scheme so often, but let's start off simple. What exactly is a Ponzi scheme? Yeah, a Ponzi scheme is so simple that you can't, it's sort of amazing that more people don't do it. <laughs> a Ponzi scheme is basically an investment scheme where the returns are paid to earlier investors using the money that was contributed by the newer investors. So what you do in a Ponzi scheme is you attract a large number of investors and you promise them like an insanely high rate of return with like zero risk. And then the returns are paid out by the investments that are made by the new investors. So mm. rather than paying people back from like legitimate profits earned by something that you're investing in, you are paying them just with the money that the newer people have put in the pot. These schemes work pretty well if you have a lot of people buying into it and a lot of new investors because you can keep paying the old investors. Right. They tend to collapse when <laughs> there are not enough new investors to sustain the right. old investors. 
And so if there's a run, for example, that is not good for Ponzi schemes because all of a sudden there's no more money left in the pot. The most famous Ponzi scheme probably of all time happened fairly recently. It was Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff had a $50 billion Ponzi scheme that went on for many, many years until he was finally brought to justice in 2008. So that was actually the biggest Ponzi scheme in history. But before there was the word Ponzi scheme and before Charles Ponzi, there's been Ponzi schemes since the 1800s. They just had a different name back then. Mm. They were called Rob Peter to pay Paul which doesn't doesn't right. doesn't flow off the tongue as as much <laughs> as Ponzi scheme. I think it's just a better. So people will be like, "Oh, I was part of a Rob Peter to pay Paul." Sometimes they were called Rob and Peter schemes. Yes. The first guy ever that we think did a Ponzi scheme was a guy by the name of William Miller. In the 1890s, he ran a 20 million dollar Ponzi scheme that promised investors 520% rate on their uh, deposits. So they would get 520% back on their investment, which is a pretty good deal. And he was- That's a pretty good deal. Yeah. He was, is he still taking uh, investors? Yes, do I yes. He is, yeah. You can go to millerassociates.com and he- <laughs> No. So he was brought down. All right. So, so who is Charles Ponzi? Tell us a story, John. Well- as I mentioned, he was he was a poor Italian immigrant. He moved to Boston in 1919, and he started what would become the largest and most successful investment fraud scheme of all time. He started this company called the Securities Exchange Company that promised investors 50% return on their money in 45 days. So all they had to do was put in their money, and they would get 50% back in 45 days. And we'll get into all that. But I just want to tell you a little bit about sort of physically what Charles Ponzi looks like because he was kind of an interesting guy. He was only 5'2". He weighed 130 pounds, so he was a little guy. Wow. Um, but he was like a massive personality, just a huge dynamo. He loved talking to the press. You know, he would wear like these crisp Panama suits with a silk handkerchief and a silk tie. Right. And he always, he walked around with like a gold-handled walking stick and he, he would smoke these like Turkish cigarettes with an ivory gold holder. So he was a real dandy. He was like yeah. larger than life. He was kind of like everybody wanted to be him in the neighborhood kind of thing. He was driven around in this limousine. They were called locomobiles. These were like the handcrafted automobiles of the time that were sort of competing with Ford because Ford kind of made like cars for the people. These were like yeah. cars for like the elite. So he drove around in this locomobile. He had this driver and he was just like, the talk of the town in Boston. So did Charles Ponzi arrive in America rich? Like how did he how did he get to the point where he's walking around with uh yeah. gold-handled canes? <laughs> it took a while. It took a while for him to get there. He was born in 1882 in this small town called Lugo in northern Italy, and he was working class. His father was a postman. His Italian name was Carlo. He was Carlo Ponzi. And his parents wanted him to have an education, so they cobbled together enough money to send him to the University of Rome. But from the time he was young, Ponzi was kind of a ne'er-do-well, and he just basically never accepted that he was a working-class guy. He always thought of himself Mm. as like an elite, rich guy. And he basically spent the four years at college hanging around with really rich kids, and sort of treated it like a four-year vacation. He skipped class, and he was a compulsive gambler. He would go to these like dark clubs in Rome and gamble away all his savings. And he was basically like an easy mark 
and kind of a sucker. Hmm. But he always thought of himself as like, you know, this higher classed individual, even when he had not a dime, which probably later would sort of help him sort of, you know, fashion this character uh, that he would that he became. So after he got out of college, everybody kind of realized that he was kind of not going to make any kind of money in Italy. He was just didn't have the right attitude. So his uncle just told me he should go to America because at that time, America, like it, it had this like mythology around it that like literally the streets were paved with gold and you right. all you had to do is like show up and you could like basically stoop down and take the gold and just be a rich person. So we sent him, <laughs> so they, the family like collected about $200. They sent him to America do, do you think they really thought he was going to succeed or they were like, look, 200 bucks will get this guy out of our life? <laughs> I think that's it. I think they just wanted yeah. to get rid of him. I think he was definitely yeah. a drain on them. They're like, oh, maybe he'll do better in America. So they yeah. sent him there. He went. He arrived in Boston in 1903. Apparently on the boat ride over, he gambled away the $200 they gave him. So he arrived penniless. <laughs> he got to America. He had no skills. He didn't speak English. He was completely hungry. He changed his name to Charles. And, you know, back then there was a lot of racism against Italians. So he mm. found it really hard to get a job in Boston. So he started he traveling down like the East Coast of America looking for jobs. He just did like every job that he was a grocery clerk. He was a factory hand. He was a dishwasher. He worked on sewing machines. He painted signs. He did everything. He just never could hold a job. And anytime he did get, have a job, he would gamble the money away. So in 1908, he decides to move to Montreal. Because it had a huge Italian immigrant population at the time. So he figured he could sort of get in with the the Italians that were already there. He makes a decision in Montreal that will really change the course of his life. Don't leave us hanging, John. Okay. What's this decision? He's working at this shipping company and he notices a checkbook on his boss's desk. And he decides to take a check, write, forge the his boss's name take it to the bank and cash it for $423. I don't know why 423 of all, but that's probably the equivalent of like, you know, $10,000 now. Yeah, right. Jeez. He bought all these fancy suits. Of course, he gambled a lot of it away. And the bank was very suspicious from the moment he walked in the place. And they sent a detective and the detective showed up at his boarding house and basically arrested him. And Ponzi pled guilty and he went to jail. Huh. He went to jail for three years. Of course, when he got out of jail, he couldn't get a job, but it gets worse. There was a bunch of newly arrived Italians that had just come from Italy to Montreal, and he, he agreed for a sum of money to smuggle them into New York. They got on a train, and at the border, the border patrol caught these guys, and they asked Ponzi, you know, who are these guys? And he said, oh, I'd never seen them before in my life, whatever. He didn't obviously didn't have a very good plan, and yeah. <laughs> he got arrested for smuggling, which is a big federal crime. And he was thrown in a federal prison for two more years. So now he's going back to jail. This time he goes to jail in Atlanta. So the guy is just cannot wow. keep himself out of prison. And so, and he, and he I'm just going to guess, so he learns his lesson and goes on the straight and narrow from that point forward. No, it gets worse. <laughs> he's definitely, this is, this story is not a good representation of the, the reform abilities of the prison system because it seems yeah, like, it he just, like it. he just gets worse. He's now he's like the Southern guy because he moved down to Atlanta. So he goes, there is one nice story during this time. He was basically working as a, at a hospital as a nurse. I don't know how he got a job as a nurse, but he's a nurse. And one of the people he worked with, this other nurse, 
is involved in this terrible accident where the stove blows up and like half of her like face and her arm and her all her skin gets burned away and he donates his own skin uh, to her as a sort of skin graft uh, surgery. Wow. So I guess he had a heart. There's no question yeah. that the guy had a heart. People always said he was incredibly generous with his money when he had it. So mm. eventually he decides to move back to Boston where it all began. Mm. Now he's going to go straight. <laughs> so when, if ever, does he start to find some success? It, it happens in Boston, which ironically is where he started, you know, where he first got off the boat when he was just a penniless um, Italian immigrant. The first good thing that happens for Ponzi is that he meets this woman named Rose Necco, who is a pupil of his, the landlady of the boarding house where he's staying. And she was a, a music teacher and Rose Necco was studying music with her. And he met her on a train platform and he told, you know, this boarding house landlady, that this is the woman that I want to spend the rest of my life with. And he proposes to her and somehow she agrees to marry him. Hmm. And they get married in 1918 and Rose would really become the love of his life. And so that was good for him. He also got into Rose's family, ran this like grocery business in Boston and they were having some trouble and he tried to help them out and then he bankrupt the company. So that was great. So that was another <laughs> one of his wins. <laughs> but um, damn Carlo I, yeah, I know it's like nice husband um, but apparently he was always scheming he had this notebook he was always writing all these business plans down and telling people like oh this is a business he was like you know he's one of these entrepreneurial types and yeah. you know we I think you and I have found this a lot that a lot of these people who are con artists they want to be legitimate entrepreneurs and they have actually have really yeah. good minds for business but they turn to the dark side and he was one of those guys like, one day he got this letter and it was from a friend in Spain and the friend said, hey, there's a really good magazine that I like that's only published in America. If I, if I, if I send you postage stamps can, and some money for the magazine, can you send it back to me? And Ponzi all of a sudden had this like aha moment. And that is this. There at the time, if you wanted to send a letter from like Italy to America, it was kind of complicated because there was different, like they didn't have like one postage stamp that could be accepted mm. in every country, right? So right. so what you had to do was you had to basically send this little slip of paper with your letter that that was that was like Italian currency that would say like you can exchange this letter uh for stamps. They were called international reply coupons and they were huh. basically these little legal tender slips of paper that could be traded into the post office for stamps. And Ponzi had this idea that that if you redeem some of these stamps in the US but not the country that where they originated from, the currency in the other countries was so devalued uh, because of the war and because of other reasons, because of like economic turmoil, that you might make a profit. So he basically decided that he could exploit like the exchange rates of these reply coupons. So this is his business idea that he thought was like this million dollar idea. Did he have success with that? Did he did he put that into motion? Yeah. This is where the Ponzi scheme begins. So okay. He basically is very excited about his idea. He has absolutely no money to start a business. So he takes Rose's diamond rings. He takes his gold pocket watch. He brings them to a pawn shop and he opens up a business. And it's funny because we always talk about, you know, coming up with a fancy name for a business. Okay. Yeah. So he came up with this business name called the Securities Exchange Company, which sounds like a government, you know. Yeah, that sounds like just... 
bland enough to seem like a real government agency. Yeah. Yes. So he's able to rent an office space on this on this street called 27 School Street in Boston. And he opens up this business and somehow he convinces people to slowly start investing. And basically what he tells them is, if you give me money, I can give you 50% return on your investment within 45 days. And they're like, that sounds incredible, but I don't believe you. At the time that he's doing this, it's a little bit unclear, but it seems like he really legitimately thought that he would be able to invest that money in this kind of like postage stamp exchange thing and make money that way. That didn't turned out to be completely untrue and didn't really work out. So he ended up really just taking people's money and then paying them back after 45 days with the new people's money. But what happened is most people didn't want their money right back. So they would keep it in or they would put more money in, right? Yeah. And it started to basically snowball. So you're not, it's unclear if he went into this thinking, wow, this, this posted scheme is, is, is gonna take off for real. Or if it was a taste of, he made a little bit of money doing something and then he was like, wait, I got an idea to make a lot more money. It seems to me that he always thought that this would become eventually a legitimate business. Um, okay. I think he thought, eventually I'll turn this around or if anything, I'll just get somebody to buy this business as is and then I'll just cash out. And But he never had a plan from what I can, my research to sort of take as much money as he can and then get out of the country. That was like never his plan. He wanted to start like a legitimate business and be like a legitimate yeah. Boston, like Brahmin rich guy. And, right, right. you know, eventually what started off as like kind of like a snowball rolling became like this avalanche because word of mouth started spreading and people really started like investing. And it was all sorts of different types of people. It was like anybody from like the like factory worker who like would put in $78 to like a upper middle class family that would give him like $15,000. He had paper boys you know, giving $10 of their salary, like anybody could invest, right? And people right. would just line up outside his office and invest, invest, invest. And people were starting to get back 50% returns. And so the word spread like crazy. And at one point, the police were a little bit suspicious of this. So they sent two detectives over to his office to sort of see what was going on. And they talked to him. And eventually they ended up investing. Huh. <laughs> they were like, oh, this sounds pretty good. And they gave him their money. So he had police. He had right. newspaper reporters. Everybody was cashing in on this. God, did did Madoff like read this guy's book? Because, you know, that's the exact thing. <laughs> Is that really the what investigators happened? Investigators go to check him out. He charms them. I'll give you everything you need. And, you know, he's giving them investment advice. Oh, my God. He must have studied the Ponzi playbook. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And you would think like, okay. You sort of understand, I mean, obviously, even in today's day and age, 50% return sounds insanely good, and it's much higher than you would normally get by any legitimate means. But this is before the Depression. So you have to understand, yeah. like, this is like post-World War One. There's a lot of, like, excitement about being- This is the Roaring Twenties, This right? is the Roaring Twenties, and there was a lot of, like, get-rich-quick schemes that were working, and people really- were open to these kinds of ideas and they weren't scared because they didn't have this like um, memory of the depression that was about to hit right. them in 1929. So this is the time when people were very aggressive about investing in stocks and, and investment schemes like this. So, you know, he was sort of cashing in on an era when people were very positive about these kinds of, these kinds of investments. So, so you describe them as this sort of cocksure, big personality, you know, do we have any sense behind the scenes if he was like, 
this is all great, or did he ever get the sense like any minute yeah. the cops are going to break through the door and I'm going to jail? I think he was always terrified, but mm. at the same time, he was incredibly sure of himself, and he was the kind of guy that would talk to a reporter at any time. He like reminds me of one of those guys from the old time movies, you know, that would yeah. just be like, <laughs> let me tell you something about, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he yeah, had that. you want to get rich, see? Yeah, hey. And then all the reporters loved him because he was always good for a quote. And he started making a tremendous amount of money. Basically, in six months, he made about $2.5 million. He had about 7,800 customers. $2.5 wow. million, I don't even know what the equivalent is. I'll, 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 I'll look it up real quick. So it's about approximately $28 million. Cool. So he made $20 million in just six months. He was raking it in. He had so much money that he bought a bank. And he named it SVB. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he opened up like branches in New Hampshire, Vermont, Connecticut, Rhode Island, New Jersey. So he had like these these security exchange offices all over the place. The main office was always on 27th uh, School Street. And he was just a man about town getting rich. But he also was catching the attention of law enforcement, of the attorney general, of the post office. Because whenever anybody would ask him, well, how are you doing this? He would say, because I've got this great deal that I do with the post office. I wonder if, you know, back then, obviously, uh, records aren't being kept on computers and there's not digital files and you can't just like uh, dig into someone's records Easily, yeah. it's you know, it's stuff written in books. I wonder exactly. if that made it harder or easier to pull off these kinds of schemes. Yeah, I would think it would probably make it easier, right? It's like it's a lot of work, as we'll find out, to actually dig into his books, and it takes investigators months and months to sort of like square the numbers and figure out because he was good at moving money around. He had money like in many, many different banks all over the, the city, and so he was kind of good at kind of shielding his money from uh, investigators' eyes. You know, you asked if he was during this time, if he was kind of always fearful. And it, apparently he had this horrible ulcer that would just flare up. And I think that behind the scenes when he wasn't acting like a big shot, I think he was terrified that he was going to get caught. But I think that he had convinced himself that eventually he would be able to square all these numbers with his original like postage exchange idea. And he started getting a tremendous ego during this time. I mean, he basically believed that he was like Christopher Columbus's heir, who was, you know, at the time, Christopher Columbus was considered to be a good person um, yeah. <laughs> and, and an Italian hero. <laughs> so, so uh, it's funny. There was a, there's one story where um, he was walking up to his offices and he would always have these people like in the crowd, just shouting to him, like, we love you, you know, thank you, Ponzi. You know, he was like a hero. And wow. somebody said to him, you know, hey, Ponzi, you're the greatest Italian in the world. And he said, no. I'm the third greatest. He said Columbus was the first greatest because he discovered America. He said this guy Marconi was the second greatest Italian because he discovered the wireless. And then the guy yelled out, yeah, but you discovered the money. <laughs> <laughs> so Ponzi discovered the money. His first eight months, he made $15 million, which is the equivalent in 2022 of $220 million. So Oof. in eight months, he made $220 million. So this guy... John, I've never made that much money in, in eight months. Ten <laughs> never, months, maybe. Ten months, exactly. <laughs> uh, you have to give it to him. I mean, this is a guy that was basically like giving his skin literally off his back yeah, a year right. ago, right? And now he's making $220 million a year and driving around a locomobile and walking around with a cane with a you know, so he was the American, the embodiment of the American dream. So you said, you know, authorities were suspicious, people are digging in. 
Is there a, a golden straw that broke the camel's back? Is there something that sort of tipped him over the edge? It, it seemed like he would never go down, but the really thing that in the end really brought him down, which is interesting, was the, the newspaper. There was a newspaper called the Boston Post, and at first they were like very pro-Ponzi and they would write all these very flattering stories about him. But as they started becoming more suspicious of his business dealings, they decided to sort of turn their focus on him to be more negative and critical and really investigating him. And it's interesting because the story is sort of like the tale of two classes. The guy who ran the Boston Post was this guy named Richard Grosier, who was like the classic Boston Brahmin. Like he had everything that Ponzi didn't have. He was born in America to a very wealthy publishing family. He went to Harvard, but he was kind of like also not a very good student, but he kind of, he, he wanted to impress his father who ran this paper and he inherited his father from his paper. So he knew he had to make a big splash. And he sort of decided that Ponzi was going to be the thing that was going to put him over. He was going to bring down Ponzi. And he sort of made it his mission to turn the paper into the sort of anti-Ponzi gossip newspaper. And, but beyond just gossip, they started uncovering things. And the biggest thing that they uncovered is they sent a reporter up to Montreal and got lots of pictures of Ponzi back then when he was just a poor working class guy. And they got evidence of him being, you know, doing prison time. I mean, of course, now this would be like an internet search away. But back then, you know, people didn't know that he had done prison time in Canada. And that was a big deal that he had basically forged a check that was very damaging to his reputation and just very personally embarrassing to him. The other thing is people started making, when they started hearing bad news, they started making a run on their money. And that, of course, is the death knell of a Ponzi scheme. So he started having to pay out a lot, a lot of money. He had such a complicated web of ways that he was going to pay back people. He was going to sort of steal money from his own bank. And the attorney general was now on to Ponzi and had been investigating him. So they froze his accounts. So he all of a sudden had no access to any money. You know, all these terrible things started happening to him. People started to sue him. Uh, and he just had so many legal obligations. And and the feds, you know, were closing in, closing in, closing in. Eventually, he just had no money left and he had to uh, surrender. He was arrested and he still claimed his innocent. They tried to give him a plea deal. And he said, nope, I, I'm going to go to trial. And he kept throughout the trial, he kept going to the press and saying, like, I'm the good guy here. You know, the banks and the government are trying mm. to take your money. And, you know, we see how this, you know, how sometimes people will do this, where he would vilify the sort of institutions that are sort of put in place to protect you. He would yeah. vilify them, make them seem like they were the bad guys. He was the good guy. And he had a, a huge following of people that supported him. But in the end, the law did him in and he got convicted of of mail fraud and spent uh, was sent to jail for five years. Uh, you know, five years is not a not short time if you are in prison. But it doesn't it doesn't seem uh, 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 proportional to uh, yeah I what mean, he we're did. Talking millions and millions of dollars here. Well, the government probably agreed because as soon as he got out of federal prison, he, the state charged him with similar crimes, and so as soon as he got out of prison. He was arrested again. Oh. He was put on trial, convicted, and got a <laughs> sentence of seven years. But here's where it gets interesting. During the time that he was in between in between the prison sentences, he was on appeal and he got out on bail. At that point, he decided he was going to escape back to Italy. And he went mm. on the lamb. 
and he somehow got himself to Tampa. He shaved his head, he grew this really thick mustache, he wore this like sailor's cap, and he escaped to Tampa Bay where he was getting on a freighter to take him back to Italy. And he also faked a suicide. He had his friends leave some clothes of his on a beach in Jacksonville, Florida with a note, a goodbye note to Rose and to to his family saying that he couldn't go on anymore. So he faked a suicide. He thought he was going to get him to Italy, but he's such a blowhard that on the boat, he started telling everybody who he really was because I think he couldn't (laughs) (laughs) stand. So I I think he couldn't stand people not knowing that he was the famous Charles Ponzi. So of course they told the, they told the police, the police came and got him. And threw, <laughs> and threw him back in jail. But I maybe this is good for him is that after a few years of his sentence, they just decided to deport him anyway to Italy. But of course, he didn't have a, a dime. Wow. You, you, had, you had said that Rose was never left his side. So was, did she serve any time or it was just all him? Rose never served time. She wasn't guilty of anything. She would basically come to his his jail like every day to visit him, certainly during his first sentencing. When he escaped and went on the lam and was deported to Italy, at that point, I think she just gave up and she divorced yeah. him. And it was crutching for him because that was the only kind of thing, like that was his rock, Rose. So yeah. she divorced him in sort of the nineteen late 1930s. And he basically was in Italy and then somehow he, he got to Brazil in Brazil, for a minute, he was making a little bit of money because he was working for Mussolini's government, oh God. helping them import stuff and export stuff. But then, you know, when the war turned around, well, that that operation went out of business very, very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> so he became like a, he was in Brazil and he became like a school teacher, would still write letters to Rose almost every week and she saved them all. So he was still completely in love with Rose. Wow. Eventually, he died pretty much broke. He had a blood clot in his brain. He was 66 years old, and he died in a charity hospital in Brazil. He only had $75 left, and he used that to pay for his burial. So it's a it's a sad story in a wow. way. Wow. Yeah. What, an, what a, wow, that's incredible. This tiny guy uh, dying alone. Jeez, that's like my. Uh, that's I uh, just fast flash forwarded to my own future. Um, but uh, in some ways, he was able to live his dream. It was probably about a nine month dream, but he lived a life that maybe maybe a lot of people dream of at least for nine months. Yeah, and then it all came crashing down because he did it in a dirty way. It was interesting. On his deathbed, he he did an interview with a journalist, and he admitted that it was a scam and that it was all a fraud. And he had never really admitted that. I don't even think mm. to himself that he had ever admitted because I think somehow there was a part of him in the in the back of his mind that felt like this would one day become like a legitimate business. But right. he admitted that the whole thing was a fraud and that he had he had screwed up. Yeah, and then his regrets at losing Rose. That was his biggest regret. So it's a sad story. And you know, it's so interesting, like why his particular story caught the imagination of the press and everything in terms of like mm. later, why his name it was always a Ponzi scheme because there would be many Ponzi schemes after Ponzi died. But right. for some reason, his just caught on as the, as the phrase to use. Yeah, that's interesting. It's kind of like, uh, you know, with Watergate, then every, every political scandal becomes gate. <laughs> I'm kind of a fan of this guy. I mean, I don't think he was a evil intentioned guy. Like, I just think he got in over his head. 
Yeah. And, you know, as we've talked about with some of the other folks, he doesn't, at least from what we've heard, he, he didn't commit any violent crimes. You know, we don't know what effect he had on the people whose money he stole. So you could say he destroyed lives. We, we, I, don't, I don't know. He definitely destroyed some lives. I think I saw some statistic here. Let me see. I wrote it down. He was able to get most of the money back to the people he owed. 20,000 people who held Ponzi notes received about 37.5% of their investments back. So they got something. Everybody got something right. back. But look, some people, there were definitely some stories that that filled the headlines afterwards. Like, you know, this army veteran, you know, gave everything. And, you know, yeah. and now what was really interesting is after he was convicted, some people gave their money back. They didn't want the dirty money. They mm. didn't They didn't want to be associated with dirty money and they, you know, maybe people with morals or religious people, they were like, I don't want to touch this money because it's hot money. And so, ah. yeah, so a lot of people had different reactions, but the press was not, apparently those stories of people who had lost money from Ponzi were not selling newspapers. So there's not a lot of reporting on that. People would rather believe their fantasy that you, right, know, right. you could retire forever. They didn't want to hear this, the hardship stories. Yeah, the, the Billy the Kid, uh, you know, <laughs> Exactly. Uh, he, outlaw It's definitely a truly American story, right? Yeah, yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so now we know. Now we know uh, when you hear Ponzi scheme, now you know exactly what that means. And to clarify, this is not a Fonzi scheme <laughs> where you're really cool and you're a 45-year-old teenager living over someone's garage. It's a, it's a financial scheme. And Ponzi, may you rest in peace. So there's, there was a really good book on this that I read when I was doing some research, and I'd love to give this guy a shout out. It was called Ponzi's Scheme, The True Story of a Financial Legend, and it's by Mitchell Zuckoff. Really good page turner. So I got a lot of my information from, from this book. So I recommend it if you want to dig deeper into Ponzi. And of course, if you just want to hear more stories of dirty money, then subscribe to this podcast. Well, I'm going to do both, John. <laughs> I'm glad that I convince you to invest in our Ponzi scheme. <laughs> That's exactly. <laughs> high returns on this one. You get yeah, knowledge. Uh, guaranteed. 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 <laughs> All right, Dan, until next time. Until next time, uh, I'm going to, as always, I'm going to go uh, wash my hands. Too much dirt, John. Too much dirt. Too much dirt. Dirty Money is a production of the Entrepreneur Media Podcast Network. It is produced by Dan Bova and John Small with music by Rich Bova. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Thank you for listening. <laughs>